From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The Robodebt Royal Commission last week released its damning report into the illegal scheme which ruined so many lives. Commissioner Catherine Holmes excoriated a raft of ministers who had oversight of the scheme, especially Scott Morrison, who was a main instigator of the program as Social Services Minister. Also culpable were senior public servants who not just failed to give frank and fearless advice, but held back unpalatable advice and were part of the general cover-up. What we don't know is who has been referred for prosecution or other action because the names are in a sealed section of the report as recommended by the Royal Commissioner. Bill Shorten pursued robo-debt in opposition, mobilising a class action. In government, Shorten is Minister for Government Services, overseeing a department that, in an earlier iteration, was at the centre of robo-debt, and he's also Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. He joins us today to talk about the aftermath of the Royal Commission report and on progress reforming the NDIS to make it more sustainable. Bill Shorten, how can we guarantee there will never be another political and administrative failure of the magnitude of robo-debt? Do we need structural reforms or do you think the lessons of what's happened will be enough of a deterrent? I think all of the above. I genuinely believe that this Royal Commission and the report has the opportunity to educate a generation of politicians and senior public servants about the errors that have occurred here. So I think that the way that the Royal Commissioner has drafted the report, her words, her analysis, the uh, summary and the dissertation uh, of the evidence, I think has sent shockwaves through Canberra. And I think it's a reminder for all political parties, not just the coalition, although I do think the coalition, that their last period of government, the Abbott Turnbull Morrison era of government, will be characterised by law-breaking against the vulnerable. Do you think there's anything in the argument that the current generation of public servants are less frank and fearless than perhaps in the past, that with the emphasis on responsiveness to ministers, which is part of the present theory of public service administration, that that does compromise their independence? There are a lot of great public servants. There are a lot of great ones. But there was this terrible uh, synchronicity where I think we had some public servants who, according to the evidence, prioritised the values of the former regime ahead of other considerations. And as a result, you had tragic coincidence of a bunch of coalition ministers who view people on welfare as second class, uh, that they were hiding a mountain of gold, ripping off the system, that doll bludger attack. You had that very backward, regressive, conservative, wrong view of people using the welfare system. And it combined with some public servants who, according to the evidence, were more interested in implementing the views of the ministers than keeping within the swim lanes of the laws. But even when public servants don't go that far, when they're not sort of corrupted, using that in the broad sense... Don't you think there is a a tendency these days to be more willing to say yes, minister, than no, minister? 
Well, I don't know what it was like in the 1980s or 70s, but from my last patch of government, was a junior minister with Kevin Rudd and a more senior minister with Julia Gillard, to now, I think the coalition did some real damage in the intervening period. Contracting out, never had a good word to say about public servants, capping numbers, putting in some people who were clearly very closely aligned to their worldviews or their particular value base. Uh, and so I do think some of the independence of the public service was damaged. Now, you've made it clear, I think, that you think Scott Morrison should uh, resign from Parliament in the wake of this report. Do you think that any public servants who are subject to adverse findings should also quit without waiting for further action to be taken? Well, just on what I've said about Mr Morrison, I genuinely think it's his view. It's up to him. He's been elected. He has a legal right to be in Parliament, so I'm not going to make him coerce him. I just think that a lot of politicians I know, not just on the Labor side, but also the Liberal side, uh, who, when confronted with the same evidence, would show more contrition, uh, would show more self-awareness. In terms of the public service, that matter has to be done within the public service. A minister saying, I'm going to sack you, or I'm going to sack you, that also undermines independence. One of the lessons of RoboDebt is that Good process doesn't always guarantee good outcome, but bad process significantly decreases the chance of proper outcomes. So it'll be up to the public service to take what action it has. Some of the secretaries have access to information in the sealed report, which I don't. So therefore, I don't know what should be the case, what decisions they should make. But as a general observation, I do think we were let down by um, some of the public servants who gave evidence. And they can't live in a consequence-free world. You couldn't in the private sector if this came out. Maybe they have a moral obligation, though, to remove themselves from the system. I'd have thought they had a moral obligation to obey the law to begin with. I thought they would have had a moral obligation not to treat people on welfare as um, guilty till proven innocent. I think they probably had a moral attitude uh, not to think that people on welfare should be treated second class. So I don't understand their moral framework already. Services Australia, which you oversee, is the old human services department reinvented, which was at the centre of robo-debt. What have you done to satisfy yourself that it's a changed body? Well, that I did from day one, uh, because, of course, the great irony was um, I was now the minister of the organisation I'd helped organise a class action against to recover money, so it was genuinely... Quite an evolutionary moment. Is that awkward around a water cooler if you're over there? I um, Sometimes when I'm a little embarrassed, I laugh. I did laugh a little bit. Um, but in all seriousness, the people leading uh, Service Australia now were not the people in charge when RoboDebt happened. And I've been impressed by their professionalism. Again, I must keep shouting out, not just for the frontline staff, but there's many senior executive staff who are excellent, who have a vocation for public service. But there are things that we've done. And I found the agency very open-minded about additional proposals. They had already stopped doing the income averaging of the style that was proposed by um, it would happen in RoboDebt, so that had already happened. I've certainly encouraged them to reach out to um, the advocates more, Economic Justice Australia, the Welfare Rights Centre. I've tried to explain to Service Australia that the advocates are not the enemy. They may represent citizens who are unhappy with Service Australia decisions, but they're almost like the genuine audit of the system, not the auditor's orders, but they tell you the problems. I, I've learnt over 35 years of working life, be it in health and safety disasters from SO to Beaconsfield, through to my work and disability, through to being opposition leader, through to this, that organisations work best when 
bad news is encouraged up the food chain as much as good news. We live in a world of organisational dynamic where you're more likely to get promoted if you tell your boss what you think they want to hear. But what we need to do is encourage a culture where you need to feel you can tell the boss what they don't want to hear. Because having attended the funerals of workers who've died in bad safety, having met the mothers of robo-debt victims, having worked in the disability sector with a lot of people, one thing's guaranteed when you don't listen to bad news, it gets worse. The government seems to be in two minds about the Royal Commissioner's decision that the names of those referred for further action remain secret. There's a suggestion they may be released at some point. Do you think they should be released and what sort of timeline might be involved? All right, Michelle. Well, you are such an experienced journalist. There's at least four questions in that. The first one I want to say is the government's of one mind. The sealed section is sealed. The second thing is it's not clear, but I think it's a legitimate point for the government to eventually conclude on is once those processes happened, should there be reporting that those processes happened? Probably. That could take years. Well, I don't know that. That's, um, But I get the concern if it took years, but I'm not sure that is the case. But going to the issue of what we should do or shouldn't do, as both the Prime Minister and I said, we weren't necessarily expecting the Royal Commissioner to say keep it all sealed, that it's not unprecedented, but it's a bit more unusual. Uh, the discredited Trade Union Royal Commission certainly released the names of delegates and organisers they wanted to sort of say there's an adverse finding on. But I also, I mean, I think the Commissioner Holmes has done such a fantastic job so articulately getting to the heart of matters to vindicate the experience of hundreds of thousands of robo-debt victims, that if her view is the best steer is to make sure that not putting out all the evidence and putting out all the material in the sealed section improves the odds of better investigation by regulatory authorities such as the Anti-Corruption Commission, the Federal Police, other bodies. If she thinks that's the better way to go, well, you know, I think the government's prudential to, to listen to her advice. So... Should the government release any of that section? And if it wanted to, are you clear on the process? Would her permission be needed or can the government just do it? I don't know the answer to that uh, last question yet. Uh, it's a fair question, but I don't know the answer to it yet. So do you think some of it should be released? Uh, listen, I'm going to stick with... If the, if the commissioner said it should say still, that's fine. I do, though, accept that there's an interest in accountability, that there's scepticism, that in the absence of any detail whatsoever, people say, well, what will happen? I just want to reassure people as the person who helped organise the class action and who campaigned for the Royal Commission, and we've now had the Royal Commission, uh, I and the government are completely committed to accountability in this, but uh, we've just got to see where that takes us in the next number of days and weeks. I suppose those people who would question this would say, how do we know action has been taken against the named people if we don't know who's named? Why would it be in our interests not to see the journey out? I just say to people, why would it be in our interest not to? I want the truth to come out. I think the parliament was broken by the Morrison government. 713 references in parliament to robo-debt over three to four years. We never got close to what we got to in the Royal Commission. Unfortunately, it did take the valiant actions of the Victorian Legal Aid uh, in the Amato case, in the Masterton case, plus me helping organise a class action, plus the Royal Commission, to get to facts we would never have otherwise heard. So I just say to people who are impatient to get, you know, who did what, when to who, a lot of that's contained in the body of the report, the 665 pages. Uh, all the facts are outlined uh, and we'll just 
the journey will continue, but we're not interested in um, not having accountability. This was not the usual political issue. This was a systemic, unlawful conduct where ministers have looked, their only defence is that they were too dim to know what was going on. And I'm not sure that stupidity is a great defence, not when you're at that level of government. Just one more point on this. You mentioned that your departmental head had more information about this than you do, this um, sealed section. Doesn't that seem a bit odd in our system of ministerial responsibility? The path that's been outlined by the Royal Commission is that the Attorney-General and three departmental secretaries get to see the sealed section. These matters have been referred to various regulatory agencies for follow-up, and then one of the processes is that they will speak to departmental secretaries where there may be an existing public servant. Uh, I'm confident that process will follow that. We'll get through it. I, it's uh, unusual, but no, it's not um, something which I can't live with. I accept if that's the path we're on, that's the path we're on. But I do also make really, really clear to people we wouldn't have the Royal Commission but for the change of government and the class action. We wouldn't have it but for all the victims and advocates and the mums and the people. And so I'm not going to give up on them. I understand what you're seeking. The former government returned a large amount of money to people from whom it had been wrongly collected. But is there a path to compensation for victims? The Royal Commissioner didn't recommend this did she no she said that because there were so many people in different categories or, or different circumstances she said the cost of running the compensation would be more expensive than the compensation she's referred to possible causes of action which individuals might have uh, but she wasn't supporting a general compensation scheme the class action did see 112 million dollars in cost and interest paid some people have said that what they got repaid was very small but that also meant that some of their amounts, that they had debts that they were being sued for, were relatively modest. I get that no amount of compensation will restore people to where they were beforehand. I've been getting pretty heartbreaking emails even in the last 72 hours from people who uh, couldn't get home loans because they had the debt notice, people who in having to pay for the debt, which was unlawful, uh, had to forego other economic opportunities, their stigma, their self-harm and worse. You know, it really has been a dreadful episode of systemic law-breaking which undermines the confidence of citizens in the nation, and that's a disaster. But there's not any more that can be done for these people? I don't know. The Commission raises possible heads of, or causes of action. Uh, I guess that remains to be seen where that goes. I think there are things that we can do generally. There are 57 recommendations. There are recommendations there which we're sort of already doing, to be honest. There's recommendations which you shouldn't have to recommend, but clearly the commissioner was so unimpressed by the conduct of the previous coalition government, she's had to recommend things like, you should always check that your proposal going to cabinet is legal. That's what we do, but anyway. Um, obviously she felt that clearly there was something quite... There was a pathology of... Uh, unlawfulness in the heart of the previous government, which is disturbing, and we'll have to work through the rest of the recommendations. One thing she did make clear is that we'd be good to end this sort of notion of our dull bludger bashing. I think the community's up for that change. I'm always very careful in the language I use. And for instance, on a related area of the NDIS, I always make it incredibly clear that NDIS participants are not a problem. And, um, you know, I just think all of us in public life and indeed those reporting it 
need to be careful of feeding tropes or stereotypes. Welfare is uh, a human right. If you're down on your luck, if you're suffering disadvantage, uh, welfare is part of our framework of a fair go in Australia. And um, we've got to stop viewing that everyone's just having a lend of the system and learn these lessons, confront some of our own prejudices perhaps in the process. Well, let's turn to the NDIS. Where are you up to now in the reform process? What major changes have been made so far and what are you particularly focused on at this time? Initially, we've changed the leadership of the agency. We've changed the uh, dimension of the board. There's a lot more people with disabilities. We're getting more people out of hospital and reducing waiting times between NDIS recipients eligible for discharge but actually being able to get a housing outside the hospital. And we've reduced a lot of the legacy cases at the AAT. We're now carrying out a series of reforms that we announced in April and put into the budget to fund, building up capability in the agency. We're looking to convert of the 1,500 labour hire in the National Disability Insurance Agency, about 800 to full-time work. We're looking, uh, we're hiring the first round of hiring 600 of 900 new jobs in the agency to improve capability. We're working with people with disability, their representatives, uh, co-designing how we can have longer-term plans for people. I'm talking to the ACCC how we clamp down on price gouging, our criminal task force going after not the people on the scheme but some service providers who are rorting the system and we've got now a lot of operations underway. But interestingly, even in that, we haven't said that we're going to bank a set number of savings. We just want to get rid of the crooks out of the scheme but we're not creating notional budgets that somehow this will deliver some mountain of gold. I just want to straighten up the scheme in the best interest of the participant. And we've got our review coming out in October. Now, you've received recently the interim report of that review. What have been your main takeouts from that? Uh, people can go on online and read the report. And it's it's put out by the Secretariat and uh, the reviewers, Bruce Bonner-Hady and Lisa Paul, supported by an expert panel of people with disability and other People are very committed to the work of giving people disability a fair go in this country. The report's called What We've Heard. So it's just, if you like, outlining 10 to 12 issues or core propositions about what people are saying about the scheme. So it's not quite an interim report, it's an update. But I think there'll be issues for us to talk about. How do we improve, for example, early intervention for kids with developmental delay in Australia? How do we build foundations beyond the NDIS, so it's not the only life raft in the ocean. Uh, how do we look at formulating what therapies we fund and if they're sufficiently evidence-based? So it's, it's setting out the intellectual framework for our recommendations. You suggested at one stage that the commitment to reduce the rate of spending growth of the scheme to 8% annually by 2026 mm. was just a target and it wouldn't be the end of the world if it wasn't reached. Now, then you fairly quickly backtracked on that and you were more confident of reaching that target. What is your position now? Are you confident? My position is what it was before I said that, when I said it and afterwards... I'm confident we will reach that target. The purpose of the sentence structure saying it's not the end of the world was to illustrate the difference between a cap and a target. But I should have realised I was a bit naive in my language. And I want to make clear it's not a cap, uh, that funding for people isn't going to run out 11 months in a 12-month program and I've got to wait till 
the next financial year. But I am confident of our reforms. And, you know, hats off, a couple of the Liberals sort of sniped the line and then tried to pull on the thread. But it's not going anywhere because, frankly, we're the only party who can fix the scheme. We actually understand the way to fix the scheme is put the best interests of NDI's participants first. I think a lot of the reforms we've suggested, to be honest, were low-hanging fruit, but our predecessors were so disinterested or inept that they couldn't even do the basics properly. And I'm confident that not only with what we're doing, but furthermore with the reforms to the scheme, we can improve transparency, predictability, consistency of decision-making. We can make sure it's humane, and I think we'll find the, the targets we can improve on, but yes, we're committed to the targets completely. Bill Shorten, thank you very much for talking with us today. That's all for our politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon. Goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes.